During my four years serving as a priest in Bellingham, I joined a group of Muslim, Jewish, and Christian leaders called the Bridge Builders. Organized by the head of the local Islamic center, we met monthly to take turns sharing our faith traditions with one another. After we'd been meeting for a couple years, and after we had marched in a parade, shared some public classes and holiday celebrations, and won an award from the Whatcom Dispute Resolution Center, at one meeting I asked a question. I wonder, I wonder whether we know each other well enough yet to talk about the situation in Israel-Palestine. A hush fell over the room. I watched people's uneasy facial expressions. And while I don't remember who said it first, the consensus was clear. No, we're not ready for that yet. Maybe someday, but not today. Okay, I thought, fair enough. Now, we could have decided from the beginning that while we were comfortable sharing our faith with one another, politics was strictly off limits. But as faith leaders, we understood that our political convictions can't just be excised as if they are not informed by our core beliefs. Yet we feared permanently damaging our friendships by hastily engaging a seemingly intractable political dispute. When we decide not to risk division, this isn't necessarily to our credit. We're passing up an opportunity for the deeper intimacy that can arise through conflict. Sometimes, though, we're just not ready to go there yet. Both Jeremiah and Jesus went there, and they dragged everybody along with them. We hear first today from the prophet Jeremiah, a political figure if ever there was one, as he rails against false prophets. He attributes his words to God, a risky proposition at any time, but particularly when you're accusing other people of deceptively claiming to do the same thing. When will the liars stop lying, he wonders. Well, in the intervening 2,600 years, the problem of identifying the liars has not gone away. <laughs> These days, just try stating an objective, demonstrable fact. For instance, Joe Biden won the election. <laughs> then see how many people rise up to shout you down without a shred of evidence, but with very strong convictions. My gosh, it's not a partisan proclamation. It's just math. In a world of increasing uncertainty, people who've been intentionally misled are the most likely to give up on the possibility of critical thinking. But like it or not, regardless of our politics, we humans are emotional creatures. And we make most of our decisions not from logic, but from emotions. Our emotions also drive our divisions more deeply than mere logic would. And our deepest divisions are not simply between Republicans and Democrats, or Christians and non-Christians, or Americans and foreigners. No, they defy simplistic categories. In reality, we divide from one another over values as yet unexamined, convictions we don't even understand that we hold. We show our true colors when we are under stress, 
or when a crisis forces us to reevaluate everything we thought we had been certain about, everything we were sure all humans should agree with us on. So when will the liars quit lying? Never. Not as long as there are people who prefer a fabricated story that fits their biases. False prophets abound these days, as they did in Jeremiah's time and as they did in Jesus' time. Like Jeremiah, in today's gospel reading, Jesus is fed up. Like Jeremiah, Jesus has no patience for those who use their power to deceive, who plan to make others forget God's name, who encourage us to entertain unfounded conspiracy theories and to act on revenge fantasies. I call the false prophets they, but at every turn it's my duty to check myself. How can I be sure I haven't become one of them? How do I know I'm following God and not just some cleverly devised fabrication? And if I were to find out that my convictions have been false or hurtful, how painful would it be to change? Well, as Christians, we believe that we see God's personality most clearly in Jesus. When we follow him, we find that we are following God for real. How can we discern whether we're on the right track? It's not easy. But I'll share what I've learned so far in my nearly 50 years walking with Jesus. God's way makes no allowance for falsehood. If you're beginning with a lie, you'll end with a lie. The end does not justify the means. God's way comforts the oppressed and vulnerable, and it calls the rich and privileged to repentance and a changed life. And if you assume you're not rich or privileged, it's important to look at that more deeply. God's way is not what we would have chosen. It's full of twists, turns, and surprises that demand our acclamation. God's way is not a list of rules, but a new approach to relationships. Because God accepts that we humans don't logic our way into love. Instead of enforcing a rigid status quo, we always need to cultivate patience and grace. God's way divides people before it unites them. This is because we are free to reject the way of love, and so often we do. God's way is complicated and difficult. It will lose us friends and very likely family, and we may even wind up with enemies who wish to destroy us. God's way is completely worth it, though we may not be able to see that for a very long time. And only by stepping out in faith can we find the courage to follow Jesus on God's way of love, which is never the path of least resistance. We see all these characteristics spelled out in the letter to the Hebrews, too, which picks up today where last week's reading left off. God's history with humanity is marked by people who stepped into the unknown to follow a divine call. They didn't live to see the fulfillment of the reconciliation that God promised them. The author writes that Jesus is God's promised fulfillment, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So we are to run with perseverance the race that is set before us, 
following Jesus, even when the way toward reconciliation leads first to division. When we say we are followers of Jesus, what do we mean? At first, we might just mean that we're fans. We think the guy was onto something. As our faith matures, though, we discover that this isn't enough. Not because we are not enough for God just as we are, but because the status quo has become deeply dissatisfying to us. We want to be like Jesus, or at least we want to want that. And so we deepen. We go out of our way continually to learn about the faith tradition we claim. We put ourselves out there more. We entertain the notion that we may have been acting on misinformation and misplaced emotion for a very long time. We know and understand that it is God's good pleasure to give us joy. So we don't fear being wrong as much as we used to. Repentance and amendment of life are simply part of the ongoing process of becoming more loving. Finally, we come to understand that all this fire, all this divine shattering, all this change we didn't want or ask for, it might be necessary for the sake of love, for the sake of justice, and eventually for the sake of reconciliation and joy. Jesus needs to take it all apart to put it together in a new way. Maybe Jesus even needs to take the church apart to build it back up again. Indeed, we find that Jesus burns up with it and then rises from the ashes of our human failings. You know what? This is how the world has always worked anyway. Not by constant progress, not by uninhibited growth, not in an endless predictable cycle, rather through catastrophe, destruction, and only then, new life. Readings like today's can make us nervous because it may sound like Jesus is promoting violence, but that's not it at all. If you've ever gone through a divorce or had to stand up to your, apparent, to your parents with your opposing viewpoint, or had to leave a congregation because you could no longer bear the ways they have hurt you, you may feel more patient with Jesus' words here. In his classic book, Generation to Generation, Rabbi Edwin Friedman asserts that you don't change a situation by demanding that others change, but rather by changing yourself. This will cause a rupture of expectations. It will force a crisis that needs to be gone through to get to something better. Others may interpret your actions as violence when you are merely differentiating. This is what Jesus does. He shows up and we learn that divisiveness has its place. When Jesus inspires division, it's a creative division that burns not human beings, but barriers to change. Jesus calls for justice, and suddenly the lives we've so carefully constructed for ourselves seem lacking. We find that we can no longer sit on the sidelines while others suffer. Jesus stands with us, and now we can stand in the middle of the wreckage of our lives and find a shred of hope. We can hold our beliefs more lightly and our faith all the more dearly.
because we are reassured of the overwhelming presence of divine love. Jesus comes not to hurt, but to heal. Not to destroy, but to purify. That's not to say that nothing will be destroyed. Jesus smashes to pieces our assumptions, our illusions, our self-righteous hate, all the crutches we use to convince ourselves that we're right and everyone else is wrong, or to convince ourselves that we are not worthy of love. Jesus shows up to get us unstuck and to move us back in the direction of the love that will never fail us. So to whatever degree Jesus may care about your party's political platform, that's only because he cares how we use our power over others. As Thomas Aquinas said, if you can live amid injustice without anger, you are immoral as well as unjust. So light your spark, Jesus. You are God's word and you are a hammer and you are fire. Smash all that perpetuates injustice and burn all that victimizes. Strengthen us with faith and patience to live through times of uncertainty. Inspire us to overcome our divisions by embracing compassion, compassion with confidence, fortitude, and grace. And then welcome us on the other side of change with your arms wide open. Amen.